If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 9. The Gospel of John chapter 9 as we continue or pick up, I guess, our study in the Gospel of John. Thank you to Jake and Joshua for uh, preaching the past couple weeks so that Andrew and I could be out of town and celebrate our 20th anniversary. We had a great time and it's good to be back. It's good to be back in the Gospel of John. It's great to be in this beautiful chapter, chapter 9. Um, we are going to cover all of chapter 9, which doesn't mean that we're going to cover everything that's in chapter 9, <laughs> but simply that we are going to take one sermon to look at John 9, and I would encourage you to continue to study this passage even after uh, our time together today. Light is an interesting thing. It has the ability to both help us see and to blind us. Uh, if you take a high-powered flashlight into the woods at night and you point it into the darkness, then that light is going to reveal the path that you should follow to get out of that forest. If you're in the middle of the forest and you take that same flashlight and you shine it into your eyes, then you're not going to be able to see anything for a while. Uh, if you remember the setting for this section in John's Gospel from chapters 7 to 10, it's, it's all surrounding the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And there were two key symbols that we've been pointing out and looking at from that, that festival. One of the key symbols of that feast was water, which is why Jesus boldly announced to the crowd in chapter 7, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Now, a second key symbol of this feast was light. We remember how people danced with joy in the light of the torches that were lit each night during this festival. And Jesus latched onto that symbol when he made his second I am statement and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It was that statement that caused some people to see, to see that he truly was the Messiah who had come to rescue them. But it was also that statement that blinded some people. And when he said at the end of chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am, their blindness was coupled with murderous rage. In this gospel, the, the signs of Jesus, as well as the, his, his statements about who he is, are the ways that John is, as it were, opening the blinds to allow the light of Jesus to shine into our hearts. Remember, John is writing this gospel. He's writing all of these things so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we would find life in his name. And here in chapter 9, John gives us a sign that allows Jesus to, to shine even more brightly. As we think about the signs that we've seen so far, we've seen Jesus turn water into wine. He's healed a, a man's son from a long distance. He healed a lame man. He fed 5,000 people. He he walked on water, and now we witness him heal a man who had been born blind. It's another miracle that reveals and confirms who Jesus is. But it also reveals the unbelief of many people. It enlightens those who believe, but it blinds those who reject him. So God's word says this to us today. When the light of the world shines... It is those who admit they are blind who see him. We'll take that as our big idea today. When the light of the world shines, it is those who admit they are blind who see him. 
as we read this chapter in a moment, I want us to take note of how often people claim to know certain things or those that admit they do not know certain things. People who claim to see clearly and people who admit that they are blind. Where do we see people speaking with great confidence about what they are certain is true and where do we see people admitting that they don't know certain things? And I think we're going to find that those who admit their lack of knowledge are the ones who find true knowledge. Confidence and assurance and knowledge, they're not bad things, but a lack of humility keeps us from having a teachable spirit. And we become like those that Paul describes in 1 Timothy 1, 6 to 7. He writes, there are certain persons by swerving from these truths have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Interesting kinds of teachers there, right? People who don't know what they're talking about and don't understand the things that they're making confident assertions about. If we, in our confidence, it could be that we don't realize that we are actually blind. But when the light of the world shines, it's those who admit that they are blind who will see him. Let's look at John chapter 9. We'll read the whole chapter. Hear these beautiful words beginning in verse 1. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, that is Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. What do you, what, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What a beautiful chapter. Uh, When the light of the world shines, it's those who admit that they are blind who see. I think this chapter can be broken down very easily into three different sections that we'll kind of walk through. The first is in verses 1 through 7, where Jesus heals this man who had been born blind. And then in verses 8 to 34, which is the bulk of the passage, we see that that same man is being questioned and interrogated by his neighbors and by the Pharisees and by the Jewish leaders. And then in verses 35 to 41, Jesus meets with this man who believes in Jesus in contrast to the Pharisees looking in on their conversation who do not believe. And so let's begin. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 and see this. Jesus alone can heal our blindness. Jesus alone can heal our blindness in verses 1 through 7. Uh, Verse 1 is a little bit vague as far as when and where this sign occurred. We assume that it took place in Jerusalem sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles, but no specific details are, are given uh, the detail of this man's name is, is not given, which is actually surprising given the large role that he plays in this narrative. We know Nicodemus's name, and he doesn't even take up as much of a chapter as, as this man does. Um, it could be on purpose. It could be that he's kept anonymous so that he represents all men and all women. He is us. 
and we are him. And in that, it's no accident that the passage makes a lot of the fact that this man was not just blind, but he was born blind. It points to the spiritual blindness that we are all born into. It points to our natural condition apart from Christ. None of us comes into this world knowing who Jesus is or naturally desiring to follow after him. We all walk and wander in blindness because of our sin. Verse 2 shows us that sin is, is actually what the disciples saw when they looked at this man. Like many in their day and also in our own day, they assumed that either this man, presumably in the womb, either he had sinned or his parents had sinned, and that one of those options was the reason why he had been born blind. I think this is the first instance in this chapter of many where people speak confidence about some, speak very confidently about something that they assume they know when in actuality they don't really know all that they are presuming to. Uh, the Pharisees are going to affirm this fact later in verse 34 when they angrily say to the man that he was born in utter sin. That's why he was blind. Now, of course, we know that sickness and suffering are a part of this world because of sin. The, the, the sorrow and the difficulty and the death that we all face each day are not a part of God's original plan for this world. That's not how it was supposed to be. However, that does not mean that every form of sickness or suffering that we face is connected to some specific sin, whether ours or, or someone else's. It could be true. In fact, I think that's the case with the parallel um, sign in chapter five with the man who had been lame, given that after Jesus heals that man, you remember what he does? He goes up to him and what's he say? Sin no more, or something worse is going to happen to you. So when we face sickness and suffering, we would do well to confess our sins and to call others to do the same when, when they face suffering, but we're no better than Job's friends if we assume that every form of suffering is the result of sin, the sin of an individual. That's a simplistic way to think about God and his ways. It's a simplistic way to think about him that's found its way into our culture through the idea of karma. Everybody talks about karma. It's this idea that people assume bad things happen because you did something bad, and good things happen because you did something good. That feels very natural. It's an easy way to process the world. But Jesus pushes against that simplistic theology when he tells his disciples that it wasn't this man's sin, and it wasn't his parents' sin that caused this, this blindness. In fact, it was no one's sin. Rather, his blindness was a part of God's plan to glorify himself. This man's suffering existed, why? So that the works of God could be seen in and through him. And there is the hope of all of our suffering, the hope of all of our pain and all of our sickness. It's this hope that it can be redeemed for the glory of God that God's work can be seen even in our pain and in our difficulty. That it's not out of his control, but it's actually part of his sovereign plan. Uh, this glorification of God could occur through our healing, as it does here. But it could occur in many other ways. It could occur in our growth in Christ-likeness. That was the case for Paul. He had his thorn in the flesh, as he called it. And after praying three times that that suffering would be taken from him, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient 
for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concludes, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Suffering, whether sickness or in some other form, can be found to be a part of God's way of glorifying himself through our lives. I was reminded of the poem by Corey Ten Boom, who certainly faced her fair share of suffering. Uh, it's called Life is But a Weaving, and it captures this complexity of suffering in this world while trusting the sovereignty of God. Just remember that when you think about a weaving, not many of you are weavers, uh, the top of the weaving is very clearly seen, but the bottom just looks like a bunch of threads. Okay, so remember that. This is what Corey Ten Boom wrote. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Jesus invites us to see his sovereignty even over suffering, and he also invites us into a ministry of finding and shining his light into sorrow and pain. He says in verse five that we must work the works of God the Father, the one who sent Jesus while it is still day because the night is coming when no one can work. Now that night I think specifically here refers to the crucifixion, but I think it also can refer to, to the last day when Christ returns. But right now, uh, he is physically present. Jesus remains as a light in this world. He, he was a light in this world through his physical presence, but now he is a light in this world through his indwelling presence in us, in his, in his children. So now the, the time is, is ripe for us to shine like a city on a hill. Now is the time to proclaim that Jesus can heal spiritual blindness. Now is the time to reveal the reality that all things Suffering and blessing should be turned to the glory of God. Now is the time to do the works of God, to be his presence in this world. As we face suffering and pain, we should consider sin's role, yes, but we should also ask how our situation and the situation of others can be turned to God's glory. And we should seek to be those who work the works of God in this present dark age. Well, the miracle or the sign here is very deliberate and um, it's seen. There's no, it's not done in the shadows. When you think about the feeding of the 5,000, it seems like it just sort of happens. Same with the, the water turning into wine. But, but here, Jesus literally gets his hands dirty. He spits on the ground and, and makes mud. Just think about what that process would be. <laughs> spits on the ground makes mud, then he takes that mud and smears it on this man's eyes. He seems to do this without saying anything to the man, which I think would probably catch him a little off guard. Uh, he knows Jesus' name later on, so there must have been some conversation that happened, but there's no word from the man here. 
after he puts that mud on his eyes, he sends him to the pool of Siloam, which John says is the pool of scent, to wash the mud off. I think this is deliberate. The mud reminds us of the creation of, of Adam as God formed man from the dust of the earth. Water symbolizes life, and, and here the source of all life uses the water of his spit to recreate his creation that had been broken by sin. He sends the man to the pool called sent, possibly referring to the fact that he, Jesus, had been sent from the Father to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that he read in the synagogue at the beginning of the ministry. Remember that in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And here, the year of the Lord's favor intersects with this man's life. The man says nothing in these early verses, but his faith is seen in his silent obedience. He doesn't protest the mud. He doesn't protest the pool like, like Naaman the leper in 2 Kings 5. You remember that story? How Elijah tells Naaman, to go wash in the Jordan, and Naaman gets mad. Why? He says, behold, I thought that Elijah would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. In contrast to that attitude of, of Naaman, this beautiful man humbly receives the mud on his eyes and immediately goes to the pool and washes, and the text just simply says, and he came back seeing. There's a, a pride that even the spiritually blind can have, a pride that rejects the mud and the water, a pride that refuses to believe that we must be completely born again, made entirely new if we are going to ever see, a pride that assumes we can create our own sight and therefore refuses to listen to the one who has been sent, a pride that focuses on all the things that we assume we know and refuses to listen to others or even believe the clear evidence that's put in front of them. That's the pride that we see in the Pharisees. And we see that in verses 8 to 34. It's this, that blind people think they can see. Blind people think they can see. Here's the only thing worse than being lost. It's being lost and thinking that you know exactly where you're going. <laughs> because your confidence just gets you more and more lost. You keep walking or, or driving in the wrong direction and it just makes matters worse. And for all the, the people who interact with this man think that they know, if they could just take his lead, learn from him, and every once in a while say, I don't know, <laughs> then they would be on the, the path to, to true knowledge. As it is, they're blind and they think they can see, so they get more and more lost. The first people to interrogate this man who, who see him are his, his neighbors. They see him walking around, presumably in shock. Can you imagine what this would be like? You've never seen in your entire life. He's filled with shock, filled with joy, and they start to talk amongst themselves and they say, hey, is, is that the guy that was blind and was begging every day? And some people say, yeah, it's him. And others say, no, he just looks like him. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's, that's a real eyewitness account. No, it just looks like him. 
But the man says, no, no, it's, it's me. I was the blind man. And so they say, then how are you now seeing? So he tells them this whole story about, about the mud and about the, the pool. And they want to know, well, where's Jesus? And the man says, I, I have no idea where he was. I was blind. And then I walked away. So I don't know where Jesus is. And in fact, Jesus has disappeared from the narrative. He doesn't show back up until verse 35. Um, I think as we look at the, him coming back to his neighbors, we should note that there's a natural skepticism in all of us towards those whose lives are radically changed by Jesus. It would seem that very few of these neighbors look at this man and say, look, our neighbor has been miraculously healed by Jesus. That doesn't seem to be the majority of opinion. Instead, they either question his identity or they deny that the change ever happened. It reminds me of another man who was blind for a little bit, Saul of Tarsus. In the story of his conversion, you remember he's knocked off his horse and he's struck blind. He moves from being the, the one who wanted to kill Christians to the one who firmly believed in Jesus. But the early church didn't believe that he had been changed. In Acts 9.27, we're told that everyone was afraid of him because they didn't believe that he was a disciple. Everyone except who? Barnabas. Barnabas went to Saul now called Paul with compassion and with courage and spoke to him and affirmed that this man who had been blind to the person of Jesus now truly saw. And so too, I think we need that spirit of Barnabas in our hearts, one that hears of people being transformed by the gospel and actually believes them. Now, I think we need to be wise. Of course, we need to be wise. But we also should never be surprised at the fact that Jesus can save people who are blind because that's who we were and he saved us. Well, his neighbors were one thing, but now this man is brought before the Pharisees. We find out right away that the issue at hand is, is, is not simply that this guy is giving credit to Jesus for the healing who was their enemy, but also the fact that it happened on the Sabbath. You almost look at, when I read this, I say, oh, why did it have to be a Sabbath? Uh, but of course, that was all part of God's plan. The issue here is of the Sabbath is the first thing that comes up in this discussion. They say, how did you receive your sight? And he explains about how Jesus not only healed him, but that Jesus made mud on the Sabbath of all things. He worked, he made mud. <laughs> and the conclusion of some of them was that Jesus could therefore definitely not be from God because he broke the Sabbath. But even amongst the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, there's some, we notice, that, that are just not sure because of just how amazing this miracle was. They look at this situation and they say, could a sinner actually perform a, such a powerful and compassionate miracle? And so they're divided and they're uncertain. And they even ask the man's opinion. And he's not divided, he's not uncertain. He just says right off the bat, he's a prophet. Those who were rejecting Jesus did so according to verse 18 because they didn't believe that the man had actually been blind and that Jesus had truly healed him. That is until they called the man's parents in who affirmed that this truly was their son, that he really had been blind. As, and then as to the question about how his sight had been given to him, they say, well, we don't know that. They say, ask him. He, he's old enough. He can, he can answer that question for himself. John then gives us this parenthetical statement. He says the reason, at least in part, that they did this was because the Jews had made it clear that anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah was going to be kicked out of the synagogue. 
And to be kicked out of the synagogue was to be kicked out of a huge part of their culture and society, and they did not want that. As we read that, we can see that that threat and the attitude of the Pharisees reveal a few things about the Pharisees and their leadership, and by extension, they reveal a few things about all weak and blind leadership, religious or otherwise. Let me point out a couple of them. First, they were unteachable. These leaders were unteachable. Theirs was the spirit of, yeah, we know. We all have that in us a little bit, right? When someone tries to tell us something, yeah, 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 I know, I know. It's a pride that doesn't want to humble ourselves and learn from others. And they're so entrenched in their ways of thinking that no evidence to the contrary would ever change their minds because, well, they already know what's right. The second thing we find is that they lead through intimidation and fear. They lead through intimidation and fear. It's so interesting. They're not interested at all in investigating Jesus' claims or hearing the testimony of those that believed him. him. They, they crushed the free thoughts of people by threatening them with excommunication. That's not good leadership. Jesus has just said that, that the truth is something that sets us free, which means that an unwillingness to seek out the truth, even when it threatens our comfort and our commonly held beliefs, is a means of enslaving other people. We don't need to fear the truth. Rather, we should be wary of those who, through intimidation and fear, try to keep us from seeking the truth. Unteachable leaders who use intimidation and fear are people to avoid. Organizations and individuals that operate on generating fear and who only listen to the people who agree with their preconceived ideas do not care about people and they don't care about the truth. They care about power. They care about whether or not they have it. Creating loyalty through threats never leads to flourishing and it never leads to seeking out uh, the truth. Seeking those who agree with what I've already decided is true is not a quest for truth. It's self-deception. It's blindness. The truth will set us free and the truth will always rise to the top. We don't need to be afraid of seeking out the truth, even if it bumps up against the things that we hold dear. So we see the Pharisees didn't believe this man's story, and then they hear the, the, the witness of his parents. And so, of course, now they believe, right? No, still not convinced. So they call the man in again, and it would seem from his growing boldness that he begins to see just how ridiculous this all was. They didn't believe that Jesus had healed him. Why? because they didn't want to believe that Jesus had healed him. The back and forth of verses 24 to 34 is filled with, with irony. It's fairly comical. The Pharisees want the, the man to give glory to God by denying that Jesus did the miracle, when it's actually through acknowledging that Jesus did the miracle that God would be glorified. <laughs> they are confident of something. They're so certain that Jesus is a sinner. But what does the, what does the man say? He says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I do know that this morning I couldn't see, and now I can see. I love that. Isn't that just a reminder of the childlike faith that welcomes us into the kingdom? 
we don't have to know everything. This guy seems unclear on the sinlessness of Jesus. <laughs> That's pretty significant, isn't it? But we don't have to know everything. We just need to know that Jesus is the one that gives light and life. That we were blind, and now we see. At this point, they say they want to hear the story about the mud and the pool again, but the man is sort of fed up. He says, you know, if they're asking, he says, are you asking me because you want to become his followers too? And they say, we're not this guy's followers. We follow Moses because we're certain that God spoke through Moses. But here's the old argument. We don't even know where this guy came from. <laughs> but Jesus' own words from John 5, 46 indict them because he said there, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. So they don't even follow Moses because they're not listening to Jesus. Uh, the man finally seems to recognize that nothing he says is going to convince them that Jesus healed him, but he's also a little bit unlike his parents because he's not scared. He's not backing down. He knows what's coming and he presses forward. And for him, it's all very simple. He has very straightforward logic. He says, this kind of miracle has never been heard of. No one has ever heard of, so, people, blind people have been healed, but someone who was born blind receiving sight never happened. So this has to be from God. Jesus, he's confident, is the one who performed this miracle. There's no question about that, and it would seem that even the Pharisees can't prove that this miracle didn't happen or that Jesus wasn't the one who performed it. And says the man, God doesn't listen to sinners. Therefore, Jesus has to be from God. Now, we could go through his, his statements here in verses 30 through um, 32, or 30 through 33, I should say, and, and we could kind of hash out some of the nuances, but the common sense faith of this man reminds us that sometimes we would do well to not overcomplicate things. Sometimes we just need to say, this is what's true. And what's his logic? I was blind. I can see. Jesus is the one who did it. Jesus has to be from God. End of discussion. He doesn't have to get into all the nuances because that's what he knows is true. How do they respond? Verse 34. You were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Here's another insight into the leadership of the Pharisees and of all weak and incompetent leaders. We saw that they're unteachable, that they use intimidation and fear. And now we see they're just mean. They're just nasty. They start calling him names. Their claim that he was born in sin and that is why he was blind is ironically an admission that the miracle actually took place. They're saying, you were born in sin, and that's why you used to be blind, and now you see. But they're too angry to know that they've just contradicted themselves. Note this, poor leaders use insults when people don't bend to their will. Poor leaders just make fun of people. They're just mean. And that kind of name calling has no place in Christian leaders or in Christians, period. Insults and childish meanness, they're pretty common in our world today, aren't they? And they've become so accepted. 
Just calling people names and just being nasty and rude. But don't let the ubiquity of it convince you that it's appropriate. It's petty. And it doesn't lead to any helpful discussion. It doesn't lead to the truth. It just leads to division. Don't have anything to do with that stuff. And don't follow people who do. Well, here's the problem. We could end up focusing so much on the blindness of the Pharisees that we miss the man of faith here. We miss this man born blind because he's the highlight of this chapter. As he steadily understands who Jesus is and believes in him more and more and then even suffers for him. We can almost see his confidence grow in the chapter. Do you you catch that? The more he understands about who Jesus is, the more confident he gets. In, In verse 11, early on, he just says, the man called Jesus. That's what he knows him as. But in verse 17, he says, no, this guy's a prophet. And then in verse 32, he concludes, this guy must be from God. He's growing to understand who Jesus was. And in that, his confidence grows. He's got another revelation yet to come. But notice also the way that this man is already following the path of Jesus, the future path of Jesus. He was doubted. He was mocked. And eventually he was excommunicated, but his faith didn't falter. It grew. And in this, he foreshadows the work of Christ, remember, who is brought before a mock trial by people who didn't want to listen to him. He's brought before people who insulted him and people who cast him out of the city all the way to the point of him being killed as a criminal. But just as this man's testimony was true, so too Jesus was exactly who he said he was, even in the midst of that mock trial. And the man who believed in him was believing in a savior who would suffer and die to purchase his redemption. And he's about to meet him. So we come to this final section, verses 35 to 41. I could say a lot about this. Let's say it like this though. Verses 35 to 41 shows us that Jesus seeks out the outcasts. Jesus seeks out the outcasts. At the end of verse 34, we're told that they cast him out. And not just out of that area, but out of the synagogue. He has been excommunicated. And so he walks out of that interrogation room on one of the greatest day, if not the greatest day of his life, and now it suddenly has this cloud over him. He has sight for the first time in his life, but he's also been cast out of the community that has been the comfort for his entire life. Before his thoughts can get too dark, Jesus finds him. Isn't that great? Jesus heard they had cast him out, and what does Jesus do? He goes looking for him. And he asks him a question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man, do you, do you believe in the, the one promised in the book of Daniel who's going to bring salvation and light to God's people? And the guy says, I'll, I'll believe in him but I I don't know who he is. (laughs) And Jesus says to this man who had been blind since birth, was blind that morning, he says, you've seen him. And he's talking to you right now. I think Jesus had to smile when he said that. You've seen him. And he's talking to you right now. 
And what's the man say? Lord, I believe. And then he worships Jesus. That's the testimony for all of us is that Jesus seeks us out. He finds us. He reveals himself to us. We don't even know it's him until he tells us, no, it's me. And then we say, I believe and we worship. I think the force of this passage, I think it's all driving to verses 39 to 41. I think this is the main point that is being made through this particular sign. So let me read these verses again. John chapter nine, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. When the light of the world shines, it's those who admit they are blind who see. And those who think that they see are actually blind. What's surprising here is when Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. Because twice in John's gospel already, he says, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came to bring salvation, which is, is true. He has come to shine the light of, of salvation. But in shining the light of salvation, what happens? Some people see and some people are blinded. Some people find the path and some people are blinded by the light. The brightness of Jesus illumines the path of life for some. For who? For the blind. It illumines the path of salvation for the blind who admit that they are blind, but it blinds those who say that they can see in their own strength. And so, therefore, judgment does come on them. Jesus again reminds us that admitting our sinfulness, admitting our blindness is the first step to finding life in him. But he also shows us that he is the one who seeks us. He's the one who is looking for us. And when does he find us? He finds us when we find ourselves cast off and thrown out. He reveals himself to us and he calls us to worship him as Savior and Lord. He doesn't call us to have all the answers, does he? He doesn't call us to have some sort of fully formed faith the moment that we meet him. No. He just wants us to say, I was blind. Now I see. And that miracle of salvation was because of what Christ has done. And here's the amazing thing. The work of God is displayed every time that he heals someone from their spiritual blindness. God is glorified every time. Why? Because he is the one that's seeking us out. He is the one alone that is saving us. So all glory and praise to him alone. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us and we'll close with the song. But let's take a moment of silence now.
Father, we admit that there are so many things we don't know. But for those of us who are in Christ, we affirm once more that we were blind, and now we see, and it's only because of you. All glory to you alone, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.